one who has left his home in glory, set aside his rights and privileges to deity so that he could become the perfect substitute for sinners such as I. And so, O oh God, we are a humbled and grateful people that you have found a way to make it possible for us to be forgiven and restored and reconciled and confident that we will spend an eternity of felicity and bliss in the very presence of the God who made us and redeemed us in Christ Jesus. Our Father, we're thankful for numerous other things. There are, there are family delights that um, make our hearts glad. There is um, health shared by so many. There is plenty of money in the bank. There is a job that's safe and secure. and There are um, friends that encourage us and family that support us. All of those are examples, Father, of bounty uh, that we didn't produce by our genius. You have seen fit to honor us in so many ways. For others, Father, they perhaps are not in quite as wide a place in the road as others of us. Their health might not be as good and their family might not be as solid. And so we plead for your, your reconciling grace in the families and the homes and the marriages of all those folks who sit in this room. Our Father, thank you again for the ways that you provided for us. We are, we are serious about focusing ourselves on the accomplishment of the Great Commission. We, we, have, we have plenty of ways that we can live more simply so that we can indeed give more sacrificially so that other men might hear the claims of Jesus Christ on their lives, both locally and globally. So use every dime of this, Father, for that purpose. Train up these saints so that they might see that they can be useful in the hand of God to expand the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it is in that name and none other that we pray. Amen. Thank you. My text this morning, of course, is out of Genesis, the first chapter. It's, easy to, it's easily found. Um, actually, as I said two weeks ago, I have it memorized, and so do many of you. So uh, it's, of course, the first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, and it simply states this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, that endures forever. I, I know that some of you perhaps, and I can well understand why, why some of you would think that I am perhaps sticking my unscientific nose into places there where it doesn't belong. But let me um, uh, speak a word in my defense. As most of you know, uh, we have begun a new book study. And that book, of course, is the book of Genesis, and we'll not be treating it uh, verse by verse. I, as I told you two weeks ago, we'll try to deal with it themat thematically. Um, but it would be an act of sheer cowardice on my part, I think, to uh, not in some way address 
this great issue that uh, unfolds before us in the opening chapter, uh, opening two chapters of the book of Genesis. It's not hard to understand why the, the question of evolution should attract such attention. The, the idea of evolution has come uh, over the last 140 years to touch just about every aspect of modern thought. There is no theory that has, uh, at least in recent times, that has done more to mold the way we view ourselves and the way we view our world and our relationship to it than the theory of evolution. The acceptance of evolution, of that one theory um, promulgated some 140 years ago, initiated an an intellectual revolution that is more significant and far-reaching than even the, the Copernican or the Newtonian revolutions of the 16th and 17th century. Ladies and gentlemen, the triumph of evolution in academic circles has meant the end of traditional belief in a world of purposeful created order. And thus, in the minds of so many, has removed all possibility of the existence of a creating personal sovereign God. So in light of that, ladies and gentlemen, it is not only a can, it is a must that this pulpit address the issues that swirl around the... um, the controversy of creationism versus evolution. So let's begin. And uh, to do that, I want to make sure that one thing is abundantly clear. And I think, I hope, if, if, uh, if my technology has served me, served me well, I think I have a screen for you. And if we've got that screen, I'd like to have it now. Because what I, we, well, something that we have to do right away is define the difference between microevolution and macroevolution. Ladies and gentlemen, there's only one word, that is evolution, but that word is used to refer to basically two things. There are two halves, if you will, two halves of evolution. One is the special theory, which you, you see defined there, the special theory of microevolution, specia- or speciation. This, ladies and gentlemen, is respectable science. It is demonstrable in numerous laboratories around the world. And creationists have never had a problem, had a quibble with microevolution. What it suggests, from a creationist standpoint at least, is that God has created kinds. He has created certain basic kinds or types of animal and plant life which subsequently have diversified. If I could illustrate, uh, imagine that on the ark, there were two kinds of dogs. There could have been others, but we'll just say two kinds of dogs. And over the generations, those, um, those two t- kinds of dogs have crossbreeded to the point that today we have dogs that look like Great Danes and dogs that look like Chihuahuas. Because, ladies and gentlemen, we're, we're convinced, and, and I think it's scientifically demonstrable, that there is a jet genetic capacity that allows a degree of change until the genetic limit is reached, which is something that even Darwin discovered. 
There is within the genetic structure of animal and plant life the accommodation for diversification over time. That's it. The special theory of evolution, known as microevolution, has never been an affront to any creationist. Okay? It's the other half. And normally, ladies and gentlemen, when people refer to evolution, they are not referring to microevolution. They are referring to macroevolution. It is called the general theory. It is the one that you probably know the most about, perhaps. Uh, it is uh, gradual. I mean, I'm going to give you a lot of words that will hopefully jog your memory. Uh, gradualism, the idea that all life forms evolved from common ancestors or that the, the creation of higher and higher life forms have resulted from lower life forms. Ladies and gentlemen, what evolutionists have done is take microevolution and use it to prove macroevolution. That is, that macro is extrapolated from micro. This is um, uh, the idea that microevolution applies universally, and the lessons learned in micro are applied in macro. That is, microevolution drives macro. The mechanism, of course, is something I think you'll find familiar. The selection of random mutations, or uh, the descent with modifications, or natural selection, or the survival of the fittest. The, the suggested phenomenon is biological continuity. The, the interconnection of living things in unbroken linkages of descent. Continuity, gradualism. These are words that you've heard, that you have been taught. If I could give you a sentence, I think it's up there. Um, the sentence in summary is simply this. All of life has evolved by gradual successive accumulation of fortuitous mutations. You must keep those two things distinct in your mind, ladies and gentlemen. Because microevolution is nothing that a creationist has ever battled. Ever. It is here where the battle rages. And where is the evidence empirically for macroevolution? It doesn't exist. This part of Darwin's theory is not supported by any area of biology, ladies and gentlemen. In fact, biological and paleontological evidence and other scientific data, with very few exceptions, not only do they not support macroevolution, they tend to falsify Darwinian theory of macroevolution. Macroevolution, ladies and gentlemen, which is the thing that is stuck in your brains, that all the higher life forms came from the lower, and there's this line of life in plant and animal life that's been, that's occurred because of the gradual successive accumulation of fortuitous mutations. There is no evidence for that, ladies and gentlemen. It is counter 
factual. Macroevolution has not been supported by one single discovery since 1859, which is, of course, the publication of Origin of the Species. Stephen Jay Gould, a name that some of you might recall, he is a, a very well-known evolutionist. He is an American paleontologist, and, and, Gould, and I will quote him often. Gould says this. By the way, he's an evolutionist, not a creationist. He's an evolutionist. And Gould states, the Darwinian scenario of the rise of life's diversity is now defunct as a general theory. But it lives on. How? Why? Because, ladies and gentlemen, as I suggested two weeks ago, the alternative is unthinkable. Thomas Huxley, who is a famous evolutionist, he's called, his nickname was Darwin's Bulldog. Huxley used to look at his, uh, his scientific colleagues and he would ask them this. What is your alternative? If you don't believe that, what's your alternative? And the alternative is absolutely unthinkable. You've got to keep those two things separated, ladies and gentlemen, because I'm not talking to you about microevolution. I am someone who adheres to what has been discovered in terms of the gradual diversification within animal kinds. No creationist objects to that. It is this other thing that is so diabolical. And I want to show you why. Thomas Huxley, uh, this man I just quoted, <clears throat> he said this. Now, you're going to have to keep this quote in mind, ladies and gentlemen. You've got to keep this one in mind, all right? Just listen to it, because uh, I'm going to do a lot of quoting today. But you've just got to remember the point, not all the words. But Thomas Huxley said this. The primary and direct evidence in favor of evolution can be furnished only by paleontology. If evolution has taken place, its marks will be left. If it has not taken place, there will be its refutation. Now, this great evolutionist is saying that it is only in paleontology, it is only in the fossil record that evolution will be proved or disproved. Fossils, say evolution, is their strongest point. Yet, ladies and gentlemen, ever since Darwin, the fossil record has been an utter embarrassment to evolutionists. The predictions concerning what evolutions, what, what they expected to find in the, in the fossil record has failed miserably and made even more embarrassing by the fact that the fossil record is remarkably in, in accord with the, uh, the discover, and the, the assertions of creationism. And what's worse, ladies and gentlemen, their fossil problem is getting worse all the time. My friends, Darwin's most formidable opponents have not been clergymen, 
but fossil experts, paleontologists. Gang, what the theory of evolution suggests could happen, has the fossil record supported that it did happen? No. Not one fossil record is, has been discovered demonstrating or supporting this gradual micro-mutation and a collection of mutations to produce new kinds. Not one. Stephen Stanley, who made his mark in the Bighorn Basin in Wyoming, states this. The fossil record does not convincingly document a single transition from one species to another. And yet, just about every one of us who have taken a biology course in high school or college over the last 80, 90 years have been led to believe that the fossil record was a bulwark of support for the classic Darwinian thesis. No one has dared suggest that it was a liability. Paleontologists, ladies and gentlemen, seem to have thought it their duty to protect the rest of us from the erroneous conclusions which we might draw if we had known the actual state of the evidence. Gould described, and I'm quoting, the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record as the trade secret of paleontology. They kept it to themselves. Stephen Stanley, I quoted a moment ago, said that the doubts of paleontologists about gradualistic evolution were for so long, for so long years, for, for, for many long years, suppressed. Niles Eldridge is a man that's worked alongside um, uh, Stephen Jay Gould. In fact, I'm going to refer to them in a moment, but he says it a tad more bluntly. He states, and I quote, We paleontologists have said that the history of life supports the story of gradual adaptive change, all the while really knowing that it does not. I'm not quoting creationists, ladies and gentlemen. I'm quoting evolutionists. In fact, I, I think I can say this to you. In today and next week, I don't ever quote a creationist. Not one. Professor Derek Agar of the University of Swansea in Wales, never been there, but he says this. It must be significant that nearly all the evolutionary stories I learned as a student have now been debunked. Similarly, my own experience of more than 20 years looking for evolutionary lineages among the Mesozoic Brachiopoda has proved them equally elusive. All the stories that I learned... False.
Stephen Jay Gould in 1977 wrote an article in Natural History magazine. The title of the article was The Return of Hopeful Monsters. He says this, The fossil record with its abrupt transitions offers no support for gradual change. All paleontologists know that the fossil record contains precious little in the way of intermediate forms. Transitions between major groups are characteristically abrupt. Ladies and gentlemen, some evolutionists have come to realize that the fossil record is, is so bad relative to the theory of evolution that they want to avoid it entirely. Mark Ridley, a British evolutionist, in an article that appeared in New Science magazine in 1981, says this. No real evolutionist, whether gradualist or punctuationist, uses the fossil record as evidence in favor of the theory of evolution as opposed to special creation. Ladies and gentlemen, the clatter about the, the embarrassment over the fossil record has grown so loud that an article appeared in Newsweek magazine. This statement comes out of that article. The missing link between man and the apes, whose absence has comforted religious fundamentalists since the days of Darwin, is merely the most glamorous of a whole hierarchy of phantom creatures. The more scientists have searched for the transitional forms that lie between species, the more they have been frustrated. My friends... In spite of the tremendous increase in geological activity, in, in paleontology, in every corner of the globe, the, the Burgess Shale in Canada, the Xinyang in China, the Idiokara Hills, and the, the Big, Bighorn, in, uh, Bighorn Basin in Wyoming, in spite of this increased activity in discovery of fossils, the fossil record has still not produced what was predicted. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I know that might have bored you. Go back to the first quote I read you from Huxley, who said, the proof of evolution is going to be found in the fossils. And if it's not found in the fossils, that will be its reputation. My, my, it has not been found in the fossil record. Case closed. Or at least it ought to be. Here's another quote for you. Well, before I get to that, this Stephen Jay Gould and Niles Elridge and Stephen Stanley, they all teamed up. Because the evolutionary, the fossil record was so bad, and, they, and these men knowing that it was an embarrassment to their theory, they have now postulated a new theory called punctuated equilibrium, or punk-eek. Because what they found in the fossil record was two things they called stasis and sudden appearance, which were particularly relevant for creationists, but not for evolutionists. And so realizing that there was no proof in the fossil record, they have postulated this whole new theory called punctuated equilibrium, which states basically that it was not a gradual, successive, uh, adaptive, mutational effort. No, 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 no. It, um, that, uh, that life forms occurred in leaps, what they call saltations, in uh, hopeful monsters, in giant mutations, in giant leaps. 
jerks. He said, if evolution means the gradual change of one kind of organism into another, the outstanding characteristic of the fossil record is the absence of evidence for evolution. One other quote. Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graded organic chain. And this is perhaps the most obvious and serious objection that can be urged against the theory of evolution. You know who said that? Charles Darwin. You know, ladies and gentlemen, we were taught that there was this monumental case in the fossil record for evolution. And we were lied to. That makes me angry. I want to wrap this up this morning by sharing with you one of my prized possessions. I don't want you to come touch it because it's so old. I think it's about to tear apart. And I, and I, I will just be so sad if this tears apart. This was given to me by a fourth grade teacher while I was still pastoring in Florida. And, and may I say, just kind of as an aside, so many people who are teaching uh, evolution in their biology classes, in the, in the lower schools and, and in high schools even, are just like this young woman. She didn't have a clue as to any of what's said in these books. She's a dear woman, and she was given a certain curriculum to teach, and she taught it. But then she started doing a little hunting, pecking around, and then she came to me, and she gave me this. This is my prized possession. This came along with a six-tape series entitled The Emergence of Man. Uh, it was a color and sound film strip program based on the famous Time Life book series. This, um, it's, it's images like these, ladies and gentlemen, that have so influenced uh, the imagination of, of, a, of, of, all of, Amer- of all of the world. This kind of thing... You, you had this in your mind long before I showed you this picture. I mean, you see this in the cartoon strips from time to time. This, this, is, this is emblazoned on our consciousness. And, and, of course, it is that which is supposed to represent truth. This is pretty impressive stuff. Particularly for a fourth grader who is being told... By, uh, by this, this uh, science curriculum that paleontologists have found all these skeletons. But have they? Have they found these? You know, ladies and gentlemen, um, I have used the word in this two-part series and probably will use it. It's only going to be three parts, but I have used the word fraud. 
That's a pretty strong word. And um, I don't use it casually. Let me tell you why I use the word fraud. Have they found these skeletons? Well, have any of you ever heard about Piltdown Man? Oh, I'd love to know. Surely you've heard of Piltdown Man, haven't you? That would be somewhat like this fellow here. Piltdown Man. Piltdown Man was discovered in 1912 in a gravel pit outside a small village in England, um, in, uh, outside of Piltdown, England. That's why they called it Piltdown Man. But um, it was represented and hailed as the missing link, the, the, the link between apes and humans. All over the world, scientists were raving about Piltdown Man. Well, it was the discovery of a, um, a skull cap alongside some human uh, uh, skull parts and some jaw fragments. But in um, about 50 years later, the British weekly science magazine Nature revealed in an article that Piltdown Man was a hoax. A hoax that had been staged by Professor William Solis of Oxford University. Um, the, it was discovered to be a hoax by the application of some scientific analysis techniques. That, and it was discovered in 1953 that this was a hoax. It was designed by Professor Holix, uh, Solis um, it, because... Well, actually, let me back up. There was a tape that was discovered that detailed the hoax. And it turns out that doctors or Professor Solis wanted to put a young upstart colleague in his place. And so he perpetrated this hoax on the scientific community. And um, uh, But when the whole of Britain and all of these eminent scientists decided and hailed it as the missing link, the teeth that had been found, ladies and gentlemen, had been stained with oil paint. By Dr. Solis. But because the scientific community around the world had hailed it as the missing link, he was afraid to, to, um, to uh, call it what it was because it would embarrass so many eminent scientists around the world. Piltdown Man, ladies and gentlemen, was a hoax. But what about Nebraska Man? Uh, have you ever heard of Nebraska Man? Um, I, I think Nebraska man is, is, could be wrong here, is this handsome lad. Here, Nebraska man was found in 1922 by Harold Cook. He was dated a million years old and supposedly uh, great uh, support for the Piltdown discovery. It was a tooth that was found and a whole skeleton was built around that tooth. If that weren't bad enough, it was then discovered that the tooth came from a peccary, which is a kind of pig. Those two things became a great source of embarrassment for evolutions, as you well can imagine. But that wasn't the end of it. Java Man. You ever heard of him? Java Man would be this fellow. Discovered in, 19, in the 1920s by Dr. Eugene Dubois, a Dutch anthropologist, later admitted 
that the bones were really from a gibbon, which is a kind of monkey. And those bones were found right next to, in his dig, right next to two human skulls, which he hid in a desk drawer for 30 years. Peking man, 1939, was really an ape. And it was found with five other normal human skulls. How about Rampithecus? Rampithecus is this fellow here. Rampithecus, Pithecus means ape, by the way. But Rampithecus is known now to be fully ape. Um, he was found in India in 1932 and consisted of some teeth and jaw fragments, which have been demonstrated not to be man, but an ape. And then there was Australopithecus, southern ape, who uh, was originally found by the famous Dr. Lewis Leakey in East Africa. And now, due to his son's work, his son Richard's, Richard Leakey, his own son has demonstrated that Australopithecus is an extinct ape. Look at it, my friends. Look at it. Because it's one big old fat lie. Now you go tell that to Time Life magazine. By the way, the only complete skeletons we have is Neanderthal man, Cro-Magnon man, and modern man. Um, you've, you've heard of Neanderthal man. Everybody tends to know about Neanderthal man. You know, he's the one that we associate with evolution. He's the caveman, you know, the guy that drug his wife around by the hair. And, and uh, he becomes a synonym of, you know, evolution. Neanderthal man. He was found uh, in the Neander Valley near Dusseldorf, Germany, in 1856, when Workman blasted a cave, and this skeleton was found. Uh, and then, of course, when he was found, a complete skeleton, um, he was hailed as the missing link once again. But through the work of a German anatomist, Rudolf Virchow, and his work later confirmed by Francis Ivanhoe in 1970, it is now known that the primitive features of... Neanderthal man, the bull neck and the bent knees, came as the result of a nutritional deficiency, something akin to rickets. He is now classified, that is, Neanderthal man, is now classified as fully human. It is known that he raised flowers, he designed uh, tools, he painted pictures, and he, and he uh, uh, practiced some kind of religion. In one article of a biological periodical, two scientists said, if he could be reincarnated, if Neanderthal man could be reincarnated and placed in a New York subway, it is doubtful whether he would attract any more attention than the other people on that subway. Patrick Ewing, who made his fame as a basketball player, as the center for the New York Knicks, is considered to have a perfect Neanderthal skull. Dr. Austin Clark, a noted biologist of the Smithsonian Institution, stated it fairly bluntly when he said, Listen, my friends, 
There is no evidence which would show man developing step by step from lower forms of life. There is nothing to show that man was in any way connected with monkeys. But we were taught that. He appeared suddenly and in substantially the same form as he is today. There is no such things as missing links. But there was one in the commercial appeal on Friday. He goes on, so far as concerns the major links of animals, the creationists appear to have the best of the argument. There is not the slightest evidence that any one of the major groups arose from any of the other. Not only, ladies and gentlemen, do you not have links between men and apes, This noted Smithsonian biologist says there is not one of the major groups that arose from any of the other. Ladies and gentlemen, I can hardly contain myself, but I have vowed to my wife that I would. Thomas Huxley said, if we're going to find it, it's going to be in the fossil record. And it's not in the fossil record. So now, Mr. Huxley, what would you have us believe? By the way, Huxley is the one that says that evolution had made it impossible to believe the Bible. Okay, Mr. Huxley. Now that your gibberish has been shown to be absurd... What am I supposed to believe? I don't know what you believe. I can tell you what I believe. I believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ladies and gentlemen, where do you think those fourth graders are today? I tried to figure it out this morning. This is close. They're somewhere around 35 years old now. What do you think they believe? Tell me this. What do you think, what do you think this did to their whole view of God? Where do you think they're going to spend eternity? I don't know, but think about it. Imagine this. Imagine that I am the man that architected, created, built, and designed the Titanic. And I knew, before that thing ever sailed, I knew that it had significant design flaws. But if it, were, if it had nothing but smooth sailing, it was going to be fine. But if they ran into any turbulence, it was going to be trouble. Of course, it ran into turbulence. Tell me, do I have any culpability for allowing those people to... Get on that thing, something that I knew was full of flaw. I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that people who teach this stuff with little or no concern 
about the impact that it might make on people. That it's positively wicked. And that makes me angry. Our Father, what we want is the truth. Nothing but the truth. So help us, God. I pray that if you've led people here this morning who are wondering what the truth is, not about this, but about a lot of things, might what they have heard at least stirred them to the place where they might be willing to consider and listen to the claims of Jesus Christ on their lives. Father, grant us a fresh compassion for people who have been lied to and have built their whole formula for eternity on that which is authored by Satan. Lies. He's the father of lies. And I pray that you might grant grace so that men's eyes might be open before their views drag them into a Christless eternity. I pray that this might also embolden your people and assure them that every time that they open that book that they have in their laps, what they're reading is the very mind of God as black words on a white page. The mind of God in print. Oh, what a blessed privilege it is. We commit ourselves to you again, Father, begging for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name.